Hey, it's Avishak, and you're listening to the Stop Being Confused About Health podcast, where our goal is to discover the deepest truths about health, bust myths, connect to nature, and figure out what kind of ice cream we're allowed to eat. So I hope your curiosity is as strong as my sweet tooth, because there are a ton of questions to be asking. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. As many of you are starting to become aware, not all science is created equal. A lot of science follows the money trail. And this is exactly the case with Monsanto as uh, recent uh, documents called the Monsanto papers have revealed, Monsanto has spent considerable time uh, and effort in lobbying with uh, different science journal editors, with editors of other uh, magazines, as well as the EPA to make glyphosate-based herbicides, especially their herbicide Roundup and Ranger Pro, seem perfectly safe and normal. And they, uh, as, you, as you're aware, they lost a lawsuit, a $289 million lawsuit because of a man who was dying of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So out of this whole scenario, there have been a lot of documents, a lot of attention on this story. And today I have with me a very interesting guest. His name is Lehman McHenry. He received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Edinburgh, Scotland. And I'm pretty sure I said that right. And Edinburgh. 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 Okay, great. So he's taught philosophy at California State University. And currently, he is a research consultant to the law firm in Los Angeles that helped to, that took a lead role in the Dwayne Johnson case, uh, resulting in a successful uh, lawsuit. And he has recently published a report called the Monsanto Papers poisoning the scientific well. So I read this paper, it was really interesting. It goes through a lot of the emails Monsanto sent to different editors at different journals, the EPA. And in this episode, uh, I think you're gonna get a get an inside look at how industry manipulates science. So I'm very excited to welcome Lehman McHenry. Thanks for being here on the show today, Lehman. Thanks for inviting me. I'm pleased to be with you today. Great. So my first question is, uh, your work basically involves, you've spent your entire career pretty much looking at the way industry manipulates science and create creates this kind of false scientific effort to seem like everything's safe when in fact it's not necessarily the case. Is that right? Well, I, I actually have two uh, very broad research agendas. So one of them is in what we might sort of think of as straightforward philosophy, where I, I write on philosophy of physics. Uh, and more recently, I've become interested in more practical questions having to do with the corruption of science by corporate interest. And so I developed an interest in bioethics and specifically biomedical ethics and research ethics. And um, the work that I've done in probably the past 15 years has focused mainly on um, the manipulation of science by corporate interest. And so uh, I started with the pharmaceutical industry and, and then I was um, interested in the question of how far this extended outside of the pharmaceutical industry. And that's what led me very recently to looking at 
toxicology and specifically the, the herbicide Roundup, which is a glyphosate formulation. How did, I guess, the flow of um, your research lead you to this path? You started with pharmaceutical industries. What motivated you to you know, keep searching uh, along this path? Well, first of all, um, it was really an accident that my research interest shifted towards uh, medical issues. And that was a result of uh, consulting with a law firm in Los Angeles called Baum, Hedlund, Aristi, and Goldman. So I uh, actually became acquainted with a lawyer through surfing in Malibu, and he invited me to join his law firm. And uh, at that time, he was looking at um, maybe antidepressants, the SSRI antidepressants, and the various sorts of problems that were associated with, uh, first of all, um, drug-induced suicidality, withdrawal symptoms, and uh, other kinds of issues having to do with the way in which the pharmaceutical industry were conducting placebo-controlled clinical trials and failing to report accurately the results of the efficacy and the safety of the drugs. So that's where my uh, interest in manipulation of science began. And, and as I said more recently, uh, I, I began to sort of ask myself the question, well, uh, is it just medicine that's so terribly corrupt? Uh, does, it, does this extend to other disciplines? Like, I mean, what about chemistry? What about biology? What about economics? Uh, and so I started reading some books on the subject, and I found that um, there was a very interesting book called Bending Science that identified the genesis of this kind of corruption in the tobacco industry. And they claim that the tobacco industry wrote the playbook for how to um, insert themselves into all sorts of the aspects of the scientific process to try to uh, shift the science in their favor. And that, of course, involved, uh, in the case of the tobacco industry, alarming uh, results having to do with uh, the dangers of smoking, obviously. And uh, what they were trying to do was to create this kind of decoy scientific research to sort of shift the public's attention away from the dangers and uh, to employ the third party strategy of, of um, secretly bringing academics in to sort of defend uh, nonsensical positions about the safety of smoking. And what we basically see is that, is that that playbook that was written by the tobacco industry has now become standard practice in the pharmaceutical industry. And it also looks like exactly the tactic that Monsanto has developed over the years to try to defend um, the chemical roundup. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating history. It's what's crazy to me is that people are still getting away with it today. It's it's like there's a formula. I remember watching some documentary about the tobacco industry, and uh, I don't know if this is true or not from your experience, but what uh, what was kind of relayed was that they used uh, certain strategies that were developed by psychologists and you know advertising science to promote their products as well as, of course, everything you just mentioned. 
So when it comes to Monsanto, you know, I read your paper. This is really awesome paper, uh, by the way. Really, really great job here. Um, Thanks very much. And I, and I constructed a little timeline here. And what I'd like to try to do is put together some of these pieces as far as like strategy. So first thing that they do, you know, if I got this right, is they, so they have their own industry science. Um, and then they, and part of it has to do with partnering with different, you know, editors at different journals. How do they manage to create science that supports their view and not be purely objective? Well, I think that they do conduct their own scientific research and, and um, the, uh, the, the problem is that um, they don't do all of the testing that is suggested to them to really determine the safety of their products. So it's really a matter of what's left out of the picture here. What kind of testing are they not, not doing? And whenever other scientists do various sorts of tests that suggest that there's a red flag here, that there's definitely a, an alarm, um, now what they do is they ghostwrite the literature. That is to say that they, they write the literature themselves. They draft the manuscripts that defend themselves against what looks like legitimate science. And then they have their third party academic consultants basically sign on to these ghost written articles uh, and they're published in the, the medical journals or the toxicology journals. And it looks like in this, in this case that, that this is a much, much, much bigger conspiracy than just the collusion that's going on between the academics and Monsanto, because it looks like um, the journal editors are involved in this as well, that they're complicit uh, in this activity of, of, of uh, publishing Monsanto-sponsored papers, knowing that they are uh, coming from within Monsanto and that these people, these academics who prominent toxicologists who have have put their names on these papers, have really not done the research, they can't really vouch for what is being asserted in these papers. Right. And in the kind of the medical world, there's a lot of journals as well that have very questionable um, affiliations. And you may have heard this, but there was a lot of news about coconut oil again. Uh, a professor called coconut oil pure poison and mm -hmm. kind of citing the American Heart Association's report from last year, which um, definitely had associations, associations with vegetable oil companies. So it's this does seem to be like kind of an endemic thing. So you mentioned how, you know, different science journals, they're partnering with editors and ghostwriting articles. One of the journals you mentioned here is Critical Reviews and Toxicology. And uh, you also talked about Forbes and than the fake website. So from your research, what's the extent of this kind of effort? So there's a, at least a couple scientific journals and then how many you know magazines and uh, other partnerships would you estimate there are? Well, I really can't talk about um, anything other than what I've actually discussed in my paper. Uh, and that's because I'm of reviewing confidential documents 
and I'm bound by what's called a protective order, and I can't really speak about uh, those documents. However, this particular collection of documents called the Monsanto Papers have been declassified by the courts and made, and made public. Um, so if I confine myself to, to discussing uh, just what's in the Monsanto Papers, I think what you, what you find is, is some good examples of uh, what's a much broader attempt to flood their marketing messages using the toxicology journals and also using lay media as well. For example, Forbes magazine, you know, and you've got clear evidence here from the paper trail and all of the emails and all of the different internal documents that show that these marketing messages telling us that Roundup is safe are originating within Monsanto. And then what they're trying to do is cover that up by making it look like it's coming from somebody else. It's coming from an authority who really is an independent, objective academic who has nothing to do with Monsanto at all. So the Monsanto papers have basically exposed, uh, so to speak, you know, the wizard behind the curtain. Now we can see pretty clearly who's behind uh, all of this. And it, it really ha has to do with, I think, a lack of faith in the product that they have because they wouldn't be doing this if they really thought that the product was completely safe, that they really thought um, that there was nothing wrong with it. So the fact that they've infiltrated all these different aspects of the scientific process, even corrupting peer review, uh, corrupting uh, the manner in which um, articles would normally be retracted, namely by uh, their influence behind the scenes, it suggests to me very strongly that they do not have confidence in the science. That's a really interesting point. So for people who just need to be caught up to speed, what exactly are the Monsanto papers? Well, they are a, a collection of what are called de-designated documents. Um, so whenever you file a lawsuit against a company like a pharmaceutical company or a chemical company like Monsanto, uh, the company has to open up their internal documents uh, for what's called discovery. And lawyers and consultants will view thousands, if not millions of documents uh, and try to just put together a case based, based upon those documents. Now, those documents are confidential. Uh, and you signed a protective order with the court that basically says that you will not uh, reveal any of this to the public. Uh, however, lawyers who are uh, plaintiff's lawyers will challenge the confidentiality of the documents. Uh, in other words, they'll go to the court and say, this is very important. This is a matter of public health, and this can't be kept private. Uh, the public needs to know about this. And so that's what happened in the case of the Monsanto papers, that the attorneys, uh, Michael Baum and Pedram S. Vandenari uh, and Brent Wisner, went to the court and um, basically made that motion to the court, and, and the court declassified those papers. And that's what we are calling the Monsanto papers here. Uh, and they are some of the most incriminating documents that you'll see that reveal 
the behind the scenes manipulation. Okay, so uh, yeah, there were a lot of emails in those documents as well that you you quoted in your paper. And so let me get this straight. There's you mentioned there's websites created by Monsanto that serve as kind of a front for um, uh, pesticide safety. What? Correct. What? Yeah, could you explain that a little bit? What What do you mean by that? Well. One of the ways that, that the, the company sort of um, creates a very positive image for Monsanto, because let's face it, Monsanto has is, is got one of the worst reputations in the world. And so one of the ways that they try to create a more positive image about their company is that they'll create these front websites and that look like they're completely independent of Monsanto. And then they'll have academics who speak about the toxicology uh, uh, reports, whatever um, negative publications have have appeared in the journals, uh, and they'll defend the safety of, of glyphosate and Roundup uh, against these accusations. So one of them is called Academics Review, and uh, it would appear to anyone who's just on the internet and who is searching Roundup, you might come up to this site, Academics Review, and what you'll find is all of these different issues that they're dealing with in terms of defending the safety of the, the, the product. Uh, now, what the Monsanto papers reveal was that this site was a front for Monsanto. It was created, and these people who were supposedly independent academics uh, are on the payroll of Monsanto, or more particularly, that they're, uh, they're giving their universities grants and um, basically funding uh, the website uh, through various channels that are hidden. Do you think any of this is, you know, after the lawsuit especially, do you think any of this is going to change anytime soon? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, do, do these companies ever change? I mean, their behavior just seems to go on and on and on with, 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 whatever it is that uh, increases their market share. Uh, and I think though, however, in this case, that, that the more and more that we get documents out like this revealed to the public and more and more people like yourself find out about them, um, people become skeptical. They're not gonna buy that story anymore. And they're gonna, they're gonna be uh, a little more clever when they look at a, a journal article that's published in some mainstream toxicology journal that's defending the safety of a chemical like Roundup and, and view that with a, a sort of healthy skepticism. In 2012, um, the Seralini published a paper showing that uh, in rats, uh, glyphosate caused cancer. And then as you talk about in your paper, Monsanto worked to retract this paper. Um, do you, can you recall some of the details of that story? Well, basically, um, there were Monsanto scientists who regarded Seralini's research as a real threat. And it's because he did a much longer study than the study that Monsanto had done, uh, testing the toxicology of the, of the substance in animal studies. And in this case, uh, the results were these grotesque tumors that the, that the, uh, that the rats developed. 
Um, now, there are all kinds of uh, criticisms of Professor Seralini's work, um, but nonetheless, whether his uh, research really was scientifically valid or not, uh, it was peer reviewed, it was published in a medical journal, and just because Monsanto didn't like the results, they then uh, orchestrated this campaign to discredit Seralini and to, um, to influence several scientists to write letters of complaint to the journal, trying to get the journal to retract the article. And the editor, who was called A. Wallace Hayes, who was under pressure to retract the article from all of these scientists who were writing and complaining about it, did eventually retract the article. Now, once again, on the face of it, it looks like the journal editor did the right thing, that he went back and looked at this paper, and he looked at the outcry from all of these different scientists and decided that, uh, in this case, that the research was inconclusive. Not that it was wrong, or not that it was fraudulent, or not that Seralini had in any way uh, misrepresented the results of his research. It just said that it was inconclusive and decided to retract it on that basis. Now, lo and behold, what is it that the Monsanto papers tell us? Again, what you have is behind the scenes, they were the ones who were behind the retraction. They were the ones who were uh, inappropriately influencing the journal editor. Yeah, you know, a lot of people trust science, especially, you know, you go to a college, you go to university, you think that the information you learn about biology or, or medicine is, is completely accurate. And then there's all this behind the scenes stuff going on. So uh, what, what the rest of what happened, eventually the paper was uh, republished in some other journal, but this was a really um, remarkable instance of Monsanto in really influencing the truth. So what scares me, what, what boggles my mind is how, when you search for studies on PubMed or Medline or whatever, um, you find stuff that's that's published. But then there's all this unpublished research. Um, maybe the trials are negative and so on. So in your work, you, so with SSRIs, you mentioned this, but also with glyphosate, have you seen, um, like how do they prevent certain studies from getting published when they don't show what they want? Well, it's called the file drawer phenomenon. And that is um, you know, that pharmaceutical companies in particular um, do all sorts of clinical trials and they have to get two uh, clinical trials that show um, efficacy and safety so that they can get a license for the drug. All right, so what happens though if they do several trials and they're getting negative results? Um, well, they can just cover those up, right? They can just bury those negative results. And then if they get two trials that are um, positive, then they will write those up and publish them in the medical uh, journals. But that skews the results, doesn't it? Because it would seem to suggest that um, these, let's say these two trials where they got positive results got published, but then all of the other uh, clinical trials just got buried and didn't get written up. So the, the drug profile is, is very skewed for the drug and a prescribing physician uh, isn't getting the full picture. 
Now, the other thing that, that happens very often is, is that even when it looks like you've got a positive trial, uh, you go back into the documents that, uh, that reveal that it wasn't a positive trial, that they manipulated the, the design of the experiment, they manipulated the interpretation of the results, they uh, sliced and diced the data up to get the results that they wanted, and then they ghost wrote the report, published it in the medical journal, and it turns out it's completely fraudulent. And this is the kind of thing that we see time and time again when, we're, uh, when we open up litigation and we get access to these internal documents. Uh, the, let me just give you two, two examples. Um, the case of uh, paroxetine, which is Paxil, and the use of adolescent depression uh, has revealed very clearly that the uh, results were fraudulently manipulated and conveyed to um, through the medical journals to prescribing physicians. The drug was prescribed. Um, it became enormously popular. And it turns out that the, the drug is unsafe and the drug is not effective. And that led to a black box warning with regard to the use of uh, this drug or SSRIs in general with children and adolescents. The same thing we found with the case of a drug called citalopram, which is Celexa. Once again, they um, were trying to get a license for the drug in the use of children and adolescents, and they needed two positive results. There was one uh, trial that was conducted in Europe that turned out to be negative. Uh, there was one that was conducted, or two that was conducted in the US with citalopram and s citalopram uh, and they got a license for the drug. Now, it turns out that the first trial, which is called Study CITMD18, was completely manipulated to get this positive result. So now what we have is a drug on the market, and uh, the basis for the approval of the drug is seriously in question. So I would assume that uh, for the most money-making drugs or for the diseases where you know, that, that have the biggest burden in terms of cost have more bias. So for statins, for depressions, a big one, is this, would you say this is a trend that you've noticed? Exactly true. Yeah. And they're called blockbusters. So the blockbuster is, is a drug that's going to get them $2 billion a year in revenues. And, and, and whenever you've got uh, a blockbuster drug, that is, is to me signals uh, there's there's potentially a big problem here because those are the ones that are the most heavily promoted and marketed, and when you and when you dig into these, uh, you tend to find uh, uh, consistency across the board with respect to uh, how marketing masquerades as science. And uh, another very good example of this is the opioid epidemic that we have at present with um, painkillers, in particular the drug OxyContin, which it, it turns out uh, whenever you, you know, have this revelation that, that there's a, uh, you know, big lawsuits in this case of something's gone seriously wrong, uh, and you start looking into it and you find exactly the same pattern. They ghost wrote the literature, they hid adverse events, uh, and they promoted these, these things through uh, key opinion leaders, which are 
academic physicians who are being paid to act as kind of sales reps for the for the industry. Right. Okay. So that brings up a really good question. And right, but right before that, I want to clarify a really important point that uh, applies to uh, Roundup as well as all drugs. So all most a lot of drugs, uh, what they try to do from what I've seen is market the drug for other purposes or to other populations, the elderly, young young people, and so on. So with Monsanto, with Roundup, what I'm aware of so far is obviously it's used as an herbicide. But now we're finding out <clears throat> it's used to dry the crops. Have you? Do you know about any other uses of uh, Roundup other than its herbicidal use? Well, other than what you've mentioned, no. That's 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 the only two instances that I'm aware of. Okay. Yeah. Me too. So my question now is: so for the public, right? Because we we get our information from you know, doctors, I'd say now a lot of people get their information from online sources, but TV right. commercials created by pharmaceutical companies that use a lot of kind of fear and guilt tripping to advertise are also a source of information for, you know, the typical American that, you know, watches TV and sees this stuff. So, uh, you know, what I, what I'm curious of now is how does one, you know, someone who's very self-motivated find the you know the truth about the matter so say for example you want to find some of these unpublished reports is there an easy clear way to do that or are they all tucked away in the files uh by these companies well i think unfortunately it's the latter uh i i think that uh the basic problem here is that whenever we have uh big corporations like pharmaceutical companies that are doing their own testing, um, they have intellectual rights to that data. They own that data. And they basically decide how to distribute that data. So it's very, very hard to get to the truth because, again, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, and in terms of what's published in the medical journals. And, um, and even that, is not trustworthy because we find out in many cases that it's just like what Monsanto is doing with using third-party academics to put their names on um, scientific research that they really can't vouch for. Right, I, and I hope that, you know, we do find a way, the public does find a way to do that. I know that there's the Freedom of Information Act and so on, but it's kind of a slow process. But I, I know there are some ways, but it's just very kind of confusing. So I guess uh, my final question to you is, what what is the most, um, I guess, provoking finding, one of the most provoking findings uh, you've discovered from your research as far as, you know, manipulation of data or just outright, um, outright just messing with the law, doing, doing things yeah. that are legal and so on. Well, I, I think that the most e egregious behavior here is the ghostwriting itself. Uh, so let's be clear about what ghostwriting is. I mean, because it's, it's a funny kind of word and, um, you know, most people associate it with, um, let's say like a, a sports star who has a book uh, that's telling his or her story that's, that's, that's written by somebody else. And so you've got a ghostwriter who's writing 
uh, a book. Well, for the most part, that's, you know, there, there's nothing really wrong about that. But what's, what's going on here with respect to the pharmaceutical industry and uh, chemical industry like Monsanto is, is the misrepresentation and the outright plagiarism that this is somebody else's work and somebody else is taking credit for it. And the person who's taking credit for it is a distinguished scientist who should know better. Now, at university, if you plagiarized a research paper in one of your classes and you turned it in and you got caught plagiarizing, you might be thrown out of the university. You would certainly fail that course. This is immoral activity and it's certainly um, not becoming of any university student. However, this goes on regularly at medical schools, at universities, where professors are now uh, basically guilty of plagiarism. Now, they'll defend themselves by saying, well, I read this paper and I basically agreed with it. But wait a minute, you didn't write any of the paper, did you? No. Did you actually do any of the research? No. Can you verify the legitimacy of the data? Did you have access to the data? And the answer is, for the most part, no. So uh, there's a really a double standard going on here at universities, isn't there, with respect to what their senior medical professors will get away with, uh, but not students. It's just, first of all, I mean, it's just shocking, I think, to any student to hear this information for the first time, because they they have this trust. You know, I've spoken to university students. I've been to a big university and about vaccines or controversial issues. And a lot of them just want to trust that, you know, the university is doing the right thing. So I think yep. it's surprising and most people don't even, don't even see it. But once I think you start to see it, you do realize, okay, this, you know, everything you were taught about plagi not plagiarizing, copying people's work, it's, it's unfortunately not how things are working when, when money's involved. That's and exactly it. You, you brought up how if the product was truly safe and effective and as safe as table salt, which apparently Monsanto said, according to um, Food Democracy Now, I don't know if you've heard of them, but apparently they said that um, that's, that's obviously not true, but they, they teach that to the students. So it's, it's kind of like this weird uh, thing where they, they do whatever they want. And then they tell the students, okay, believe this information, this industry funded science, and then you go work for these companies. It's like a weird scheme of like kind of control. Um, and you know, that can get into conspiracy territory, but it's just, it's just a strange pattern. And when you look at the history of what, of Monsanto and a lot of these corporations and their tactics, um, it really does raise the question of how how can this stop and how can we change it? And I think it yeah. starts at least with people like you, you know, publishing papers like this and you know, these kinds of conversations and people just waking up, telling other people who may not be aware of these things about um, you know, the dangers of glyphosate and how how information is spread. So correct information is is really important. It's important to be skeptical. Are there any final words you have uh, for for our audience today? Well, interestingly enough, I happen to have found this on the internet today. Can you see it? Um, it's a picture of Charles Darwin. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And uh, you can see the Monsanto logo 
uh, right here in the corner of it. And, and what it says is great is the power of steady misrepresentation, but the history of science shows that fortunately this power does not long endure. Now, what's ironic about this is that this Monsanto claims to be a company that is based in science. And this is their public image. This is the propaganda. But the irony, of course, is that they are the ones who are guilty of the misrepresentation. And I really do hope that uh, Charles Darwin's um, quote turns out to be true, that the history of science shows that fortunately this power does not long endure. Yeah, I think it's I think it's endured for a while. <laughs> I think the jig is up. Yeah, hope yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Well, uh, Lehman, thank you very much for sharing your wealth of information today. Thank you so much for your work and taking the time to share with us some of some of these uh, no, not any more secrets about what's going on behind the scenes. So thank you again for yeah, my pleasure today. Goodbye.